Welcome to McKinsey Talks Talent, featuring McKinsey leaders and talent experts Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger. I'm Lucia Rahili. Today, hybrid work. Employees want it. Leaders say it's coming. But what will it really mean for the way we work? I think people understand now that we can be wildly productive at home. And so you need to incentivize people to come back and and come back for a specific purpose and to drive towards a specific outcome. That was Brooke Weddle, McKinsey partner and leader of our North American culture and change practice, here to help us understand how to get hybrid right. Hey, Brooke. Hey, great to be here. Help us understand the importance of culture as leaders navigate this next stage in our COVID odyssey. So when we think about culture, uh, we think about a common set of behaviors and then the underlying mindsets, the things that are unseen that shape how people work and interact on a day-to-day basis. And the data on culture as it relates to performance is very compelling. We have seen that companies with healthy cultures have three times greater total returns to shareholders. And that's a correlation data point. And we have seen that there is a positive relationship where health drives performance. And you can cut it in many other ways. We've also seen that when you look at transformations, you know, 70% of those transformations fail. It's a sobering number. And the majority of failures are due to people and cultural related challenges. That's pretty remarkable. Bill, does corporate culture help companies navigate change? And have we seen that bear out during the pandemic? If so? Well, look, it might help. It also might hurt, right? I mean, you know, if you think about culture, it's similar to how Brooke was just talking about it, but in a lot of ways, it's just a predisposition to behave in a certain way, right? Sort of the way we do things around here. And one of the challenges in the pandemic was there probably wasn't much in the way of a written or unwritten rule book on now what the heck do we do? And so, you know, the split between lives and livelihoods presented this really interesting challenge because whereas previously a lot of culture would have been around getting the work done, we were forced to wrap our arms around the idea of we actually have to focus more on the workers in the first instance than we do the work. And I think that stressed some cultures. Now, that was obviously like 15 months ago. As we've come along, we're starting now just to get a peek around the corner and say, well, what, what does a return look like? And I think this is an unbelievably cool time for people to say, we get a chance to remake it. You know, short of like being sold, being spun out or starting something new, it's really rare in a leader's lifetime to have this clean a drop, you know, for reshaping how you run the place. Brian, you talk to leaders every day. What are you hearing about their willingness to remake culture and to think about a full return to work versus hybrid? We are seeing some leaders think pretty expansively about what a new culture can be and what a new way of working is and how to perpetuate a culture in a new, maybe primarily hybrid world. But we're also seeing some leaders that are saying, you know, hey, our company culture is important. And because it's so important, we need everybody back in the office so that we can, you know, somehow preserve the culture. Well, we wouldn't agree with this in its totality. There is some truth there because environment does shape behavior. The gap that we would encourage leaders to think about is, hey, the world has changed. 
So you can't just assume everybody coming back into the office, you're going to transmit that exact same culture the way that it had been before. There's been too much change at the individual level, too much change at the business level. Bill, how does culture overlap with purpose in your view? Individual purpose is something that we're really seeing coming to the fore. So basically, after 15 months where we've had profound blurring of your home life, your responsibilities as a partner, as a parent, as a caregiver, and then as a friend or an employee, they're all blurred, right? I don't know about you, but the frequency with which my anxiety goes up when I look at myself in a Zoom because I've decided that my forehead is growing at an exponential rate is a little (laughs) problematic. But, you know, at some point, it's all blurred together. The challenge, of course, is that now every moment that you spend on work, you're unbelievably aware of it's a moment that you're not spending with a child or a parent that you need to take care of mm-hmm. or with your partner. Mm-hmm. And I think what's really happened, and we're hearing about the, you know, the, the great exodus or the grand resignation, you know, as we're looking at a return, is that there are a lot of people who for the better part of 15 months said, does this work for me? Do I care at all about what I do for a living? I think increasingly the bar is going really high to say it really has to be more than a job and it has to fit in with my purpose, my life's purpose. And there I think we have an interesting line in the sand for employers to say, let's help people figure out what really matters to them. And let's see if we can't help them find more of that and what they do with us. And if they can't, okay, then we'll help them gracefully leave. But if we can, don't we have that as an obligation? And so I, look, I think it's, it's a really important thing to look at. And we can see the obvious benefits, retention, motivation, satisfaction, engagement, productivity, all of it goes through the roof. When the person is spending time that otherwise could be spent in other aspects of their life, But when they're spending that time on something at work that they know really matters, literally, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, it's interesting because we sometimes think about leaders having been energized to talk more about purpose since the onset of the pandemic. But what you are talking about is evidence that employees also are everybody more invested. Yeah, for sure. It's everyone. Yep, it's everybody. Do we have any research on that, Brooke? Yeah, we do. And not surprisingly, we did find that meaningful values as a management practice was one of the core differentiators of companies that maintained healthy levels of culture during COVID. The other things that stood out were management practices that emphasized bottom-up innovation, harnessing ideas from the front lines, having employees emphasize creativity, entrepreneurship in terms of getting their work done. We also saw healthy companies emphasizing the free flow of information So knowledge sharing, performance transparency, and finally, the stable backbone, things like role clarity, operational discipline, right? Now, we have another piece of research coming out saying that as we plan for a return, it's becoming a really big deal to employees saying, just give us something, involve us in this a little bit, right? And I'm wondering, you know, to what extent is that showcasing a culture? I'm thinking of a law firm that is a work hard, play hard law firm where it was very collaborative and where, you know, you didn't mind putting in the long hours because you were part of a team where there would be a big celebratory dinner at the end of a first year associate's first deal. When you are then in a world where you're remote, some of the norms and rituals that you had, that is what made you work well as a team, all of a sudden have been disrupted. Yeah, well, on on that, Brian, I mean, I've been working with a lot of organizations that are doing that kind of listening. And I think they're listening with two speeds in mind. One is the immediate, 
let's get feedback on some of the policies, guidelines we're getting out there. This is a dynamic situation. Do we need to adjust the use of uh, Zoom versus you know, phone calls? Do we need to think about policies to help caregivers, et cetera? But then there's a second speed to the listening, which is all about shaping the future, right? And how do we actually want to do things like you know, celebrate our, our new partner class right, in a law firm? Or how do we want to create new rituals that would be a combination of you know, some of the, the things that we've learned in the pandemic around actually some of the virtual uh, you know, interactions can be quite special, right? You get a window into someone's home. You happen to see their kids more, right? I think people appreciate that. But at the same time, also bringing back some of the things that were so special about the in-person events that made people feel connected in different ways. When I think about the companies that are really being thoughtful on this, it is they're, they're really harnessing ideas from a broad base of employees in terms of shaping that future. That's interesting. Have we seen evidence that remote work over time, to Brian's point about the dinner at the law firm, has begun to rupture social cohesion? Oh, yeah. Hey, we saw it before even the pandemic happened. The struggle that people had was how do you enculture new employees who've never actually seen the people they're working with? They've not been in a team room. They've, you know, they've not been on an assignment together. And that was the real challenge. And I don't think nobody really had a good answer for that. So, you know, after 15 months of intense, exclusively remote only, it's a real challenge. We've been drawing down on an account that hasn't been invested in in like 15 months. And so there's very, very real concerns, particularly for the new people who've never had the upside of the culture. And for the old people who you just think they're getting burned out. So yes, it's very much a very real risk. And what are some of the other challenges that hybrid might pose on a secular basis that should be proactively addressed as as leaders are thinking through their culture collaboratively with their employees? I think one of the big challenges is just information sharing. I mean, there's been great research done on social networks and how they have been reinforced and weakened over the course of the pandemic. What we've seen is communications within your immediate team have gone up. That connectivity has actually gone up over the course of the pandemic, but the linkages across teams have gone significantly down. And if you think about how that would operate in a regular office, you know, walking down the hallway, bumping into somebody, hey, this is, you know, what we're working on. This is what it is like, you know, having a Uh, even a staff lunch where everybody might be sharing what's going on, there would be lots of opportunities for you naturally as part of the rhythms of your workday to collaborate outside of your immediate team. And what we're seeing now is that's gone way down and it raises the importance of the managers of those groups making the connections across because some of those connections are what's most important for innovation. Some of those connections are what's most important for, you know, driving forward the future agenda. And without them, you know, I think we're going to see companies continue to struggle as they move from this past year plus of, you know, getting through the immediate team and the immediate work and thinking about and reimagining the future. You know, Brian, I heard something yesterday that I thought was pretty interesting on on this front, the, on this the cohesion part. Teams, you know, in the past where hoteling was you didn't have your own desk, right? You had to show up or sign up. One of the things that some organizations are saying is if I'm going to come in, I don't want a hotel where I'm like, this. I want to know the whole team has a table or the whole team has a place to log in. It's a really interesting step and not all that difficult, you know, from a, a booking reservation system standpoint. 
of just letting the team get together, saying, if I'm going to come in, it has to be worth it, like work with my colleagues. So I think there's things you can do. I, you know, I was, I was on this thing with um, the FT last week, and one of the uh, people on the panel with me was an architect. He was actually a CEO of an architecture firm. And a lot of what they're looking at is repurposing around the idea of different ways of working and the purposes of that working and how they can facilitate that and expecting fully that individual work is not going to feature prominently. So I think there, there are organizations that are getting ahead of this and really being thoughtful about what is the point of togetherness, in both vis-a-vis work, but also the culture and treating them uh, both importantly. Yeah, well, to that end, one CEO that I work with describes that, and, and by the way, this is a CEO who is, is kind of the opposite of Twitter. So she wants her organization to come back and be in office first, but she wants to use the office now as a tool, right? And to re-envision what the office can mean for things like collaboration. And so they're working through redesigning their meetings as an example and thinking through what is the purpose for an innovation meeting versus a strategy meeting versus a broadcast information sharing meeting and what needs to be done in the office versus what can be done virtually and really being thoughtful about that so that the in-office interactions can be that much more powerful and meaningful. And tactically, I think also organizations are realizing in the hybrid workforce environment, you really do need to actually put in place um, specific, let's call them guardrails around when people come back. So if Bill and Brian, and I all want to work together, but I'm going back Tuesday, Thursday, and they're back Monday, Wednesday, Friday, well, then we're never going to have those interactions. So it sounds simple, but I think companies getting to that level of granularity in terms of thinking through those policies is helpful in terms of orchestrating the best possible outcome in terms of the in-office collaboration. Brooke, to that point, one of the things I've heard, you know, some of my clients say is that the office is the new off-site, the place that you get together to, you know, collaborate, think forward. What a great, move. what a great tagline, right? Yeah, I was, but I was, I'm, I'm interested great. in both your reactions as to. I love it. What do you What do you think of that? I love it because it 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 helps to put an emphasis on a purposeful interaction, right? And an off-site is an investment, right, where people spend, in some cases, too much time planning for that offsite. But the point, I think, what I took away from that is that in-office interaction can be well thought out, just like an offsite, and used as a way to drive towards specific outcomes. And I like that, um, as opposed to just going in for the sake of going in. I think those days are over. I think people understand now that we can be wildly productive at home. And so you you need to incentivize people to come back and, and come back for a specific purpose and to drive towards a specific outcome. I love the idea of valuing, valuing the time together, like Brooke is saying. Things, you know, they might be way more purposeful, way more thoughtful, and not just assuming that, oh, you're going to have people here anyway. As leaders think about when to work in the office versus virtually, is the leader's obligation always to be on site or to try to model what hybrid could effectively look like. I think it's a hugely inspiring time where a leader is stretched in new ways to reimagine what this looks like. Uh, But imagine a a leader or a manager thinking through as part of his or her, you know, work planning, what kinds of work needs to be done in an office versus not. And then imagine a leader being able to, to orchestrate based on task, based on interactions, 
really, you know, going back to this idea of purpose, what that what that could look like. And that's a new skill that I, I think many leaders and managers wouldn't have necessarily, but one that we might be building to in the future and 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 linking back to Bill's question, which is what if we started with, you know, how how to maximize the true value of an employee from that perspective. I think that's a really profound idea. Yeah, just just building on that, the idea of a manager being very purposeful or a leader being very purposeful and very communicative about how and where they're spending their time in order to make best use of the team, I think is important. So if a leader says, hey, I'm purposefully going to be in the office every day because I'm going to accomplish X, Y, and Z, and I expect this subset to be in here or this subset to be remotely, I think that can be highly effective. The leader needs to less role model what they think of the team, but more be purposeful and communicative so it's very, very clear what the leader is doing and why and how that links to how they ultimately see creating value together. Right. I'm just thinking, you know, Tom Peters had that old phrase, management by walking around. Brian, you can't just walk around the office and see what's happening and gather information. You have to be much more purposeful about your interactions and so forth. It's hard. And I think that's where we start to see other tools come into play. I mean, I was just talking with the leader of our executive assistant pool uh, in our office, And she said it's very hard to get a sense of what's going on because previously you could walk around and you could sense the body language of the EAs to be like, ooh, hey, uh, let's follow up. Let's get a coffee. Let's talk. You you could just tell. And now even in the scheduled check-ins, there's a bit of, hey, I'm good. You know, everybody's prepared for it. It's a scheduled check-in. It's a more formal piece. And it's hard to pick up some of those subtle other cues. And so I think that really, you know, takes, you know, lends itself to, okay, how else am I going to get that? Do I do pulse surveys that are that either anonymous or tracked that show, hey, how are you doing? Having leaders be skilled to ask those follow-up questions, those are all parts of the things that we need to do to make the transition work, to take advantage of the ability to be remote, but at the same time, have the insight into somebody that you do get better by just walking around. Brooke raised an interesting question, which is, what is the role of the office in a hybrid culture? Anything beyond collaboration? I'm just thinking about- um, Sense-making. You know, if mm-hmm. you think about what do we stand Say more for? about sense-making. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if you were to think about where the location is less about control and more about it's an event. So, like, think about the value of Crotonville in the heyday of GE as an academy company. So much of it was where Crotonville itself took on life, took on a meaning. Like, it was this place, it was this investment in the leadership cadre. If you went there, you had made it. It was like a big part of what you were doing. And so when does the when does the physical space mean something? Like if you're there, you know it matters. You can use that for onboarding. You can use it for significant events, announcements. In all cases, the, the space itself can become part of the meaning, part of the sentence. This is substantial. It's not just going to a cubicle or an auditorium. You know, when I first joined McKinsey in you know two, early 2000, Ian Davis was our uh, London office manager. 
and we were growing rapidly because of the dot-com run-up, you know, in terms of growth and acquisition of talent. And so we would choose, you know, we would go over like the Cafe Royale there in downtown London to have our, our all-hands meetings. And there was a buzz to that. Like you got there and you got to go sit in and he was up on the stage. It was well lit and it was just, it was special. I'm sure he could have communicated everything he wanted to say via an email, but it wasn't that. You were, you were hanging on every word because it mattered. And so I do think there's something about making, making the act that we're all together matter and matter more. What about serendipitous interactions to promote and spark ideas? I'm just thinking about like there's that famous building at MIT, building 20, where Chomsky developed deep structure. It was an incubator for scientists from a whole host of different disciplines and kind of a stew of cross-disciplinary innovation. How do you manage for that in a hybrid world where the function of the office is so planned and purposeful? So I, I think this idea of um, spontaneity can actually be part of the purpose of an in-office interaction. And I remember my favorite class at Stanford was with Mark Granvetter. He's a famous uh, economic sociologist who talks about the strength of weak ties, meaning the interpersonal relationships between different, different groups of people, disparate groups of people, and how they hold different parts of the whole together. And I think there's something really important in that, in that we need to be using the office to bring together people that don't normally interact. So it, it is, of course, fine and important to bring together teams, right, that are, are formed to, to, to drive towards a, a specific outcome. But then imagine mixing in, you know, different kinds of people and teams that wouldn't necessarily have a specified outcome, but would be there with the purpose of trying to identify new ideas, new opportunities, new relationships. And I think we can think about the purpose of the office being inclusive of that mission as well. You said something interesting there about the opportunity for mixing, helping employees develop trust and social cohesion in addition to innovation. There's also an opportunistic element to being co-located on site that could arguably confer some kind of competitive advantage. Is there a risk in a hybrid workplace that remote workers might slide into a kind of second-class status and a two-tier system emerge? Well, I think for sure we have to be cautious about not creating an in-group and an out-group. If you know you go to a place where people are in the same room, but they're not each on their own laptop, they're on a shared camera, the dynamics between those in the room and those out will be different. I mean, the one thing about, you know, the VCs, the Zooms or Teams or whatever, it is something of a, of a sort of grand democratizer of interactions. Mm -hmm. And if we go to a split model, I think it's going to require more facilitation, not less, to ensure that we're not actually, that we don't actually become hindering the gains that we've made on inclusivity. It doesn't have to be that way. I just think we have to be more thoughtful about it, particularly the extent to which you get side chatter off-camera chatter, now suddenly someone can go get coffee together, you know, things like that, right? It doesn't have to be terrible, but we have to at least be aware of it because it's no longer a shared experience for everyone. Right. Well, we specifically know, too, that working women have been disproportionately affected during the pandemic and also that working mothers are among those most inclined toward remote work. 
given the flexibility it offers. So are, is what you're saying that we have to be careful? A hybrid model threatens to make those gender inequities worse? Is that what you're suggesting? I think so. If you consider the load that we've placed on women in particular, uh, so both in sectors that have been most hit, that's also true for people of color, but women in particular in Western Europe and North America, let's just say here in the US, where we continue to ask you to be primary caregiver. So you're responsible for the partner, you're responsible for the kids, you may even be a caregiver for a parent. Oh, and by the way, you're supposed to be a leader. That loading in many cases has just become insurmountable. And so you even have a lot of people saying, I'm done. I'm not, I'm not going back. Even for those sticking it out and waiting for some semblance of the ability to sort of separate back out, you know, and go back to some normalcy in their life, in air quotes. If we were to then perpetuate this in a hybrid model, I think it might just be too much to bear. And we really risk alienating some really, really quality individuals. So what can leaders do to intentionally manage for that risk? I, th- I think that, as you said, you know, intentional, be intentional about managing for it, you know, set the set of norms where um, people who are not in the office are included. And that is as simple as, you know, everybody in a conference room being on their own individual Zoom. It can be norms around how we use Slack to update people on conversations that might have been happening uh, in the office. Ooh, that was really good. You know, let me add that to the Slack channel. And so I think there are a number of ways that managers can be, you know, quite intentional in making sure people feel included. But you also have to ask. It's it's not just the intention, but it's also the following up to see how people are doing and to check in on the people who may not be in and see what their underlying needs are. I also think there is an opportunity here for us to think about a different in versus out group. And that is the in-group being corporate headquarters and the out-group being everybody else. Mm-hmm. And I think what one of the things that when we talk about return to the office, it assumes that there is one office where all the magic happens, one office where you know the culture and the activity and the linkages happen. But for most companies, there's not just one office. There's a headquarters and multiple offices in other places. If headquarters is the in-group and everybody else is the out-group, now if we're managing in a more hybrid world, those people who used to be out are now much more in the flow, can much more you know, contribute on an equal footing than perhaps they could before the pandemic. And I think if organizations shift the thinking a bit from the office to an office, what do we want to do in an office? And then, you know, what are we doing to build connectivity more broadly? I think that little bit of a shift can help to you know, equalize a bit the field and headquarters and also, you know, keep some of the gains that we have seen in people in, you know, the satellite locations, the other locations feeling like they've been able to more fully contribute as a result of the pandemic. Anything we can learn from geographically diverse teams about the challenges in fostering culture when employees might not only be distanced by location, but also be distanced in time. We did some work a couple of years ago with an engineering firm, and we were looking at, at the, uh, the performance of engineering teams and project teams. And one of them on this was follow the sun tended not to work. If you went past three time zones, it started to fall apart. Just too many handovers. 
there's lots of things around team composition, variety of backgrounds, you know, improving the problem solving, but also, you know, not carrying, not carrying duds, things like that. But one of them was the idea that you could follow the sun, which for a lot of people where they'd set up like engineering centers, maybe in the Philippines or in India, but have a lot of the engineers in North America that it was challenging. So not impossible because, you know, ways of working have changed, but still challenging for sure. Yeah, I agree, Bill. I do think where I see a lot of innovation and uh, exciting things happening is in, you know, more broadly, the science of teaming and putting together smart teams and using big data to do that. I think people are getting even more thoughtful and, of course, adding in additional variables, you know, that have to do with offsite, uh, in-person, et cetera, to put together the right team for the right problem. And, and then thinking through where that team needs to be co-located. What's the best way to know near term whether the steps you're taking are working, whether they're enhancing or eroding performance culture? Well, I think there's, there's several layers to that question. So I, I think there's something around listening, right, and asking the question. So that would be employee sentiment. You can ask employees directly or there are passive ways uh, to understand employee sentiment. I think there's also an element of this that is more of a performance-based indicator. So looking at performance outcomes related to time to market, right? Cycle times related to productivity. I think having, and those would be business specific, right? But I do think every executive team should be looking at a dashboard right now that is a mix of performance and health and really zeroing in on the things that are going to allow them to steer the ship. Because let's face it, this is going to be a multi-year journey as we come back from the pandemic. We're going to be trying things out, running some experiments. A lot of them are not going to go well. A lot of them are going to go great. Uh, but I think having a clear sense of the, the key metrics and the, the, the North Star that signifies success for the organization is really important for the executive team to, to keep tabs on. The thing I would ask executives is coming out of the pandemic, do we have a clear sense of what it is that we're doing to create value, why it is we're doing it, what is our purpose, and how does it link to individual purpose, the individual purpose on the teams, and then therefore, how are we going to work to achieve it? What is the culture that we want to have? And if organizations have a very clear view of the what and the why and the how, I think they're on a good track because they can then start to move forward, measure against it, communicate against it, test the sentiment. But if they're left saying, hmm, we haven't really defined that well, I think that's an opportunity for reflection. Very helpful. Last question. We talked a bit earlier in this conversation about having seen trends in remote work and sort of oscillation between virtual and on-site work before. Do you think hybrid will become a secular trend? Or is it just a wade-in-the-water approach to help employees navigate the next phase of change in a more psychologically manageable way? Well, I don't know. I think, I think it's here to stay. I think, the, um, I think genie's out of the bottle, if you will, about getting people to accept that they must arrive every day at the same place at the same time and whether that means eating 90 minutes of traffic when it should only take 20 or whether it means revolving everything in their life around those work hours i think those days are pretty much gone 
particularly now that we've seen that the work does not need to suffer. So I would hypothesize that it is most certainly here to stay, but it requires a more thoughtful conversation around what the employee needs. Some employers will say, well, it doesn't work for us, but I bet many of them will figure out that this is a relatively easy thing to give on in terms of the gives and the gets and dramatically increase the likelihood that the person stays and feels well supported and is motivated and is really working very well. So I think that part will end up being uh, a real net positive for the employee experience. The challenging part, of course, will be just more complicated. doesn't mean it's impossible. It just requires more thought, more planning. Yeah, I, I also think it's here to stay. And one of the reasons I think it's here to stay is because it's what employees want. You know, in a survey we did, you know, 30% of employees said that they would be likely to switch jobs if they were required to be fully on site. And over 50% of employees, you know, responded that they would like to work at least some part of their work life remotely. In a world where talent is the scarcer of the two capitals, talent, human capital being scarcer than financial capital, companies are going to have to adjust to what the top talent wants. And if that talent is saying, I understand there are things that we have to do to manage the transitions. I understand there are sometimes we have to be in important meetings together in person to build trust, to do things that are uniquely done in person. But hey, I've seen how it works remotely and I prefer that. If that's what many talented people prefer, organizations are going to find that you know to keep that talent, they're going to need to, you know, figure out how to work in a more hybrid way. One of the silver linings from the pandemic is that we have brought a lot of innovation to the way that we think about the employee, his or her needs, and 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 what gives them meaning, and how that connects back to the organization. I think it's a hugely exciting time, actually. Fantastic. Let's close there. That was Brooke Weddle. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Lucia Rahilly with Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger. Subscribe to McKinsey Talks Talent wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have questions for Brian and Bill, write to us at McKinseyTalksTalent at McKinsey.com. We'd love to hear from you and we may answer your question on the show. Be well. <laughs>